Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop war games, and... Abstract strategy games. games. Strategy games. Other things. Other things of that nature. I almost forgot the entire intro. Oops. And I've only done it 65 times. <laughs> I'm your host, Troy, and joining me today, the uh, person who knows the difference between the horsey and the tower. That is true. Uh, my name's Ed. I'm broadcasting from my Fortress of Solitude uh, during the snowpocalypse, and uh, I have rejected video games and embraced traditional abstract strategy games. Yes, which is why today we're talking about Nine Men's Morris. Oh, boy. No, uh, sorry, we're talking about chess. Woo! Uh, which is a game that... We have both played, and neither of us is particularly good at, I would say. I'm not good at it, but I can beat chat GTP at chess. Uh, that's probably the first time I've beat a computer at chess. Look, chat GPT has no, like, theory of chess. Chat GPT is a chat bot. That's like saying, yes, I beat my lawnmower at a game of Frisbee golf. Exactly. It plays on my level. I guess I'd be, I would be interested to see a lawnmower that played disc golf, by the way. Uh, just fling randomly. Hey, man, with enough engineering ingenuity, we could do it. But should we do it? Yes. That is the question that the philosophers ask. Because those scientists, they were so busy wondering if they could, they never stopped to ask if they should. <laughs> the answer is almost always, yeah, you should. It's co It's dope as hell. You get a Do cool it. movie out of it. Um, yeah. Like, the, you don't get a Jurassic Park if there's an ethics board around. Instead, we'll have Lawnmower Park. Yeah, Lawnmower Park. <laughs> this is taking a weird turn. It really has. Uh, but we'll turn back to chess, and before that, we'll turn back to the segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby, where we talk about what we did the last week in hobby. I'll go first. My two... Dungeons & Dragons campaigns have continued. Uh, my group that is delving into the Tomb of Horrors managed to successfully complete it. Huzzah! They passed through the many-pillared hall. They ascended the, uh, like, fancy stairwell that hides behind it. They entered into the fake treasure room. Um, did not disturb the genie. I've... They could have. That could have given them some wishes. But um, they then, you know, found the secret passage there and found the vault where Asarok is hiding. Well, where the Demi-Lich is hiding. Um, and I play a little bit fast and loose with how he returns to life because um, the way modern players handle that sort of situation is different from the way old-timey players handle that sort of situation. I basically set it on a timer where once you go into the vault and grab any form of treasure, it, I, and he will return in a certain number of rounds. Um, rather than a very complicated, bizarre thing where you have to... If it, It's a weird thing where, like, a dust creature arises and then attacks and spells cast against it. 
create energy points, and if enough energy points are created, then the liches... It, it's dumb. Just set it on a timer. Um, yeah, obviously timer sounds better. Timer is better, especially if the players can only trigger the timer by entering the vault and taking treasure out of it. Um, that way they still have the opportunity to just be like, yep, that's a vault containing a demi-lich. I'm not going in there. Nope, I'm out. Going back yeah. out through the back if they, door. If they do that, then, you know, they don't have to fight him. But they did. They fought Aserak and survived by the absolute skin of their teeth. Huzzah! Uh, the artificer... No, not the artificer. The cleric, having... After they got hit by some attacks, the cleric attempted to suicide bomb the lich with a necklace of fireballs. Fun. Uh, the lich has advantage on this sort of saving throws a rather high dexterity it's a demi lich so rather high dexterity advantage and avoidance where uh if it passes the save it takes no damage instead of half Boo. yeah it passed the save oops um so it just dodged a necklace of fireballs that blew up point blank uh then it soul trapped the artificer and the warlock was left to, like, do the finishing blow and take it down in order to, you know, free the artificer's soul, and then the two of them could go over and perform CPR on the cleric. Mm-hmm. Um, which That's the they, cleric's job. Normally, yes, but uh, the the bard sorcerer had a healing spell, so they, they were able to get him back up. Uh, and so they got a shitload of treasure. I had not realize just how much like gold worth of treasure there is in that final boss room but let's be honest if you defeat Aserak you deserve it and this is going to be the point where your players derail the plot because they're like we're rich we can do whatever we want they were already fairly rich but also the plot's coming closer and closer to the end so they're probably not going to have much of an opportunity to spend that money lame um, they already own an airship. Why not own an airship airport? I, um, I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll go buy a mansion somewhere. Uh, my other group continued to delve into the big, ma- massive end game dungeon. Uh, they found and fought the Overseer, who was an Ultraloth demon, um, with some hellhounds and a bodyguard. And, uh, again, they also managed to scrape by by the skin of their teeth. Uh, one player unconscious and bleeding out. Well, no, actually, they they brought him back up. He had four hit points at the end of that fight. Um, another player had, I think, two hit points. Um, and these were some of the more tanky people who normally fight on the front lines. Uh, the Barbarian had plenty of health, but he was also kind of not as effective as normal. Um, And the cleric was hiding in the back because if he had gotten caught by some of this stuff, he would have been just roasted. (laughs) Annihilated. Um, Yeah, the the demon was like, oh, I I use wall of fire and just make everybody take fire damage for two turns. Ah! Um, And then he cast fire storm, which hit every single person with a giant burst of like 40 damage of fire most Ow. of them failed their saves this feels like one of the end game encounters from Baldur's gate that's really annoying i mean it probably was yeah oh and also he had hellhounds 
which are A, immune to fire, and B, have a fire breath attack. <laughs> so they were running around breathing fire onto people as well. It was a very burn-a-nation fight. It's just fire all the way down. Yeah, it was just all fire, which was pretty entertaining. Um, <laughs> Why don't we have a tiefling? Oh, they did. The cleric was a tiefling, so he was taking <clears throat> less damage. But uh, that's important because he also has the lowest hit points of the party. Oops. Um, so that... They managed to defeat the guy and survive, um, like I said, by the skin of their teeth, and found the third part of the key they need to uh, enter into the throne room where uh, Ral Samak, the bringer of sorrows, is, and thus the like final section of the campaign. Uh, also, I... Yeah, I think that's everything for me. Good times. How about you, Ed? Uh, my week was extremely busy until it wasn't and uh, couldn't go to work because my van is stuck in a dip in a hill and I can't get it out until the snow melts. So boss is like, yep, just don't even bother. Too snowy. So I ended up cleaning up some of my office here, cleaned off my desk because... It's a hideous mess uh, that's hard to work with. Got rid of a bunch of extraneous 3D prints that I had made, but by now I can make better quality ones, so I'm like, I don't know why I'm hanging on to these. Um, did a little bit of painting on some of my Infinity stuff, just kind of block in some of the colors, but due to the ADD, kind of lost interest in that and started doing some uh, Blood Bowl stuff after playing the video game and saying, why am I playing the video game when I could be putting together actual Blood Bowl stuff? So I put together the knockoff uh, Blood Bowl supplements that I got from that company in Ukraine, and they're actually surprisingly nice. Um, had one where the casting was a little bit janky in how it fit together, but it, you know, with some modeling clay, that all went together pretty nice. Um, so yeah, good job uh, on those guys for their uh, piracy, I guess. Uh, and then I started putting together some of the official uh, Dark Elf Blood Bowl team until I ran out of super glue, which was a travesty. Uh, I will have to say, though, putting together the Blood Bowl minis is like the most infuriating combination of Infinity and Marvel Crisis Protocol put together because you have really weird... Uh, points of separation where they'll have like the front of the foot and the back of the foot are two separate pieces or like an arm and a hand are two separate pieces. And then it does the infinity thing where there's no good spot for it to actually sit together. It's just kind of a flat surface and they're like, yep, just glue it on there. And if you just glue it on there straight, it's going to immediately fall off. So I had to use a lot of catalyst and a lot of modeling clay to actually get the guys to fit together and man, they feel so fragile. Um, I'm not, I'm not predicting good times, but it could also just be that I don't really enjoy the process of putting the models together in general. I'm much more preferring the painting aspect of it. So as long as I can get them together, maybe some of the other teams like the orcs that are chunkier will be less annoying, but yeah. So that's, pretty much been my week is mostly just putting stuff together, but I guess I'll have to go back to painting now since uh, 
I'm not a super glue. Uh, my plan was to prime the Blood Bowl stuff, but it is too cold for a rattle can outside. And I realized I had forgotten that my airbrush was in my ultrasonic cleaner since about October. And so when I opened it up, it kind of looked like The Last of Us inside that uh, ultrasonic cleaner. So currently, currently in the process of cleaning out my airbrush so that I can use it again, which is ironic because it's in the ultrasonic cleaner. Yep. So it's been kind of all over the place. Yeah, sounds like it. Yep. Party time. Yeah. So that's been the weekend hobby. Now let's talk about chess. Woo! So we talked a little bit about chess before in our episode about Go. Um, I think we had kind of a general disdain for chess. I might have played that up a little bit more. Uh, I enjoy chess almost as much as I do Go, but if you were to present me with like a Go board and a chess board and say you have to pick one to play at this moment, I'd say, yeah, I'd probably go with Go a majority of the time, but I still enjoy chess in terms of my journey in the board game world. I'm not sure if it was the first board game that I was introduced to, but it was pretty close. Um, I remember playing in first grade. My dad had a chess set with uh, all the figures were like sculpted heads. I remember trying to learn how to play with those. Uh, and then we also had a Monopoly set. And I remember us playing Monopoly in first grade. Although how, how well you can play Monopoly with a first grader, I don't know. So if nothing else, chess at least has like a nostalgia impact for me. I don't know if that's the same for you or if you're just kind of like still meh on it. I mean, I remember playing it in middle school pretty heavily. Um, like uh, sixth or seventh grade, I played a lot mm -hmm. of chess. I invented Blitzkrieg chess at the time, which is where you said, hey, look over there and then started moving mm -hmm. all the pieces around. Yeah, I kind of played like off and on just kind of like whenever it was available. It's like, yeah, I'll play. I'm not good at it. Uh, if you want a fun fact about me and my general social standing in elementary school, my uh, primary elementary school bully was the captain of the chess team. So that's how far down on the social ladder I was. <laughs> yeah, that's a strange one. Yep. So chess, uh, I don't know how much this I actually need to explain. I generally try and have the angle that our audience knows absolutely nothing about what we're talking about. But chess is an abstract strategy game for two players. Abstract meaning that it's not necessarily representational, uh, like Warhammer would be a representational strategy game because you have guys that represent various units and have abilities that, you know, archers and such would have. Whereas abstract strategy, both the representation and the actual goal is fairly abstracted. And in this one, each player has an army that's made up of pawns, uh, the rooks, which are also the castles the knights, the bishops, the king and the queen. And the idea is that you want to put the king in the checkmate where there are no legal moves available uh, that would move him out of threat of being attacked. Um, so instead of an, a war game where it's a game of annihilation or reaching a goal um, like Moncala, where you have to you know get so many stones around the board in a certain number, uh, certain span of time, 
chess is a game of position and power projection where you're trying to box the king in to make sure that he can't go anywhere. Uh, on the surface, the gameplay is pretty simple. Uh, again, like, I don't know how much of this I really need to explain, but, you know, pawns move forward, queen moves everywhere, uh, bishop moves in a diagonal. And so on the on the surface, it's pretty simple. I mean, I was marginally taught how to play it as a first grader. Uh, doesn't mean I'm actually going to be any good at it, but you can teach young children how to play chess. And some people turn into chess prodigies and other people turn into me. Uh, so the game itself, you know, it's accessible. It's simple and easy to learn, but there's a lot of surface underneath. Um, and the game is broken up into like your openings, your mid games, your end games, kind of like in Go. And studying all these various board states, the responses to known like known openings or known attacks uh, is an important part of learning the game. Um, yeah, as far as as far as the gameplay goes, if you're even relatively connected into board games in somehow, you probably know at least the basics of how chess works. Uh, one interesting note is that in a lot of other languages, the bishop is still called either a runner or an elephant. Uh, bishop seems pretty unique to English and uh, like Protestant Northern European uh, chess nomenclature. Which is a perfect segue into the history of chess, which is probably the thing I like most about this episode because unlike a lot game. of... Yep, there's a lot of history um, and there's a lot of change to it, kind of unlike Go, you know, Go shows up in the ancient past, and it's really kind of more or less the same up until now. Um, um, unless you want to dispute that. I, I, I would dispute that. Go has been the same for the last... Go has been generally the same for the last uh, five to six hundred years. But before that, it was a very different game. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I... I don't know where my train of thought was going with that, but Changes at least, chess. yeah. Uh, so chess ch traces its origins back to India and Southeast Asia, where it was originally called, a, there was originally a game called Chaturanga, uh, which is similar to chess. And there's actually an entire like chess family of games. These are all very related because they all started in roughly kind of the same ancient era and, you know, as they spread, the games change and, you know, rules get added, dropped, pieces get added, dropped. Um, so Chaturanga is kind of like the uh, nearest common ancestor for a lot of these games. So you also get like Shogi, which is in Japan, Shang-Chi in China. Yeah, I was uh, going to bring up Shogi, but you yeah. clearly have that one. Uh, Makrook, which is uh, in Thailand. And then another interesting variation that I found, it's called uh, Situyan which is from Burma. And in that one, you have your uh, second rank where you have all your, your wall of pawns, but the uh, home row pieces are all set up however the player wants. So there is an additional element of like uh, piece placement, kind of like how you have in a normal war game. Now with like your deployment zones, you get to choose, you know, where you want your various pieces to go. Um, so Chaturanga eventually spreads throughout the Muslim empires, um, in Arabic, it becomes known as Chatrang and then eventually makes its way up into Spain. 
um, along with the Muslim conquests. And that's where what we know is, quote, modern chess uh, originated from. And the modern-ish game showed up in the 1200s and then eventually kind of spread out to the rest of Europe. And today, this is what we call international or Western chess to distinguish what distinguish it from other similar games. Um, and from there, the game stayed pretty similar for about 200 years um, until 1475, when there were some changes to how the pieces moved. And a lot of these changes gained appeal with the aristocracy and the aristocrats who were the, the main consumers of chess. Um, I'm assuming that you probably have like peasants, artisans and merchants who know how to play chess, but actually getting hold of a set and or having time to study it, probably not something that your average individual necessarily had access to. And these changes are more or less similar to what we actually have now in 2023 as chess. Um, about 100 years later, chess theory starts to become a thing uh, for this version of chess. Uh, the people who have the time to sit around and play chess and think about it and do nothing else because they're uh, leeching off the classes below them to fund their hobbies. Um, they start to come up with the ideas of like openings, mid games, all that. And you get, you start getting your first written, uh, books of chess theory. And, you know, that's a thing that survives up until now. I'm pretty sure that the, you know, the Arabs, the Persians, uh, the Indians all had their own, uh, theories of their respective games, like Shatrong, Shataranga and all that. But, uh, that's kind of outside the bounds of international chess, which is what I was mostly focusing on. Also, they probably didn't write it down in English, so it's hard for us to look that stuff up. Yeah, not written, not written down in English and or, you know, maybe even surviving because this is stuff that's, you know, pre-common era. So if it is written down, who knows if any of it actually survived or if it survived intact. Um, but I do have to say good on the Persians and uh, the uh, Muslim empires for promoting board games as part of a well-rounded intellectual philosophy. Everybody yes. should play board games. So from the 15th century, uh, the game makes like small tweaks and changes. Uh, a lot of it also has to deal with like the romantic movement and people, how people saw the game. Uh, but a lot of that's kind of outside this broad overview of the game that I wanted to go to. I'm sure if somebody wanted to really get deep into the history of chess, they can find a lot of interesting things that happened in the 400 years I'm uh, sure there's like a three-hour YouTube video about the exact history of chess that you can go look at. Probably. And if there is, I will probably watch it. Yes. Um, we may put a link to that on one of our feeds if we yeah. find one that's good. So, or not. Uh, Who cares? <laughs> somebody out there does. So the first, uh, the next like big change or what I would consider quote a big change was the first modern chess tournament uh was held in 1851 in london it was organized by howard staunton uh if you know more than the average person about chess you'll recognize staunton as the name of the chess pieces and howard staunton was the chess prodigy who eventually did have the standard set of pieces uh named after him 
And uh, shortly before that tournament was held in 1849, uh, you had the first Staunton chess pieces were made by a company called Jacques of London, which was a luxury sports equipment company. And their design for the pieces was to make sure that they were simple, easily recognizable, and easy to make. Um, one of the lead designers of that original set was a wood turner. And so all the pieces that he was making were meant to be easily made on a, uh, a lathe with the wood turning technique rather than being individually carved. Uh, the only exception would be the, would be the knight because the knight is kind of a weird shape. And he decided that because the name was a knight, it should somehow bear resemblance to a knight rather than being kind of an abstracted shape. Um, and so he took the inspiration for the horse head from one of the uh, Elgin marbles from the Parthenon. Oh, cool. And so if you go, if you go and you look at like depictions of horses on the Elgin marbles, you will like instantly recognize, Oh yes, that's the knight's uh, head from chess. That's neat. Yep. And prior to this, um, chess pieces were often like custom luxury items, uh, usually considered works of art in themselves. And there's, there were a whole lot of styles. Uh, there was one called St. George's style, which was kind of uh, bulky and very thick looking. Uh, there's another one called Barleycorn, which mm. was very tall. And thick chess. Yeah, the Barleycorn ones, they're very tall and thin, and they kind of look, they kind of look like uh, uh, ears of barley, which is where the name comes from, because they're usually made of like beads or like kind of spheroids like put on a stick and kind of stacked together. And although these were very nice, uh, they varied quite a bit from set to set. So whenever you sat down with a particular person, you may have to ask, uh, you know, what is this particular piece? And or uh, they would be prone to falling over because the barley corn ones are very top heavy. So the Staunton pieces come out and they're like, yep, these are easy to make, cheap to manufacture, and they're easily recognizable. And if you go to like any fee day tournaments or anything like that, or just looking at a just, you know, a generic chess set at your local department store, they're usually going to be some kind of Staunton inspired chess piece. Um, I could probably do an entire episode on chess pieces themselves because there are so, so many of them. And there's just a lot of really cool ones. Um, you get very fantastical things. There was a medieval one I saw where it was a knight who the piece was a sculpture of a, an actual knight fighting a dragon, which is pretty cool. Um, some of the older games like Shatrong, where they have pieces known as the elephant actually looks like a war elephant. Um, a lot of the Arab and Muslim inspired uh, sets are done with very abstracted forms that have a lot of, painted uh geometric designs on them that are pretty cool uh this um, would presumably be be because uh islam has some prohibitions on depicting humans in art yep so that's where that's where that comes from and they're they're just generally pretty cool looking and if you just look for old chess pieces you're gonna find a lot of cool stuff and then in the modern day we kind of do the same thing where there's like all kinds of variants you can get like you know medieval warrior chess Civil War chess. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can find one that's like DC heroes versus villains. Um, yeah. 
Although I will forever be a stan of the Lewis chessmen, which were found off uh, the Isle of Lewis in the British Isles. And they're from around, I think, like 1,000-ish common era. Uh, they're pretty cool looking. It's the one where there's like a, a pawn, which is a, a berserk. No, it's a rook who's a Viking berserker, and he's like biting his shield. Uh, one of the queens is sitting on her throne. She looks very bored. Um, overall, they're just really cool looking, and a replica set of that is one of my like holy grail uh, board game items to add to my collection. Yeah. So yeah, chess pieces. There's a lot of them. They're really cool. They're made out of a lot of different materials. Um, but Staunton is going to be the one that you're going to find most. Uh, let's see. After that, uh, I covered a little bit of chess in the 20th century as part of the Cold War and Soviet culture for our so Soviet board games episode. Yep. Um, very popular in the Soviet Union. Not as much in the U.S., um, at least up until the Cold War, when Bobby Fischer starts trying to challenge uh, Soviet grandmasters and becomes this very weird Cold War, like, hometown hero thing to the point where, like, Nixon and... Uh, uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on the name. Kissinger? Yeah, Nixon and Kissinger have to, like, call Bobby Fischer and tell him, like, hey, you need to play in this game against the Soviets, but he was throwing a hissy fit over, like, cameras being in the arena and all that, and Bobby Fischer was a weird dude. Yes. Um, but he his uh, throwdowns with the Soviet masters kind of helped inspire uh, chess in the U.S. popular culture, because before that it had just been kind of a thing that existed, but it didn't become you know, like big until Bobby Fischer started playing on behalf of the U S in uh, international tournaments. So that's one of two good things he did. Um, and then by the nineties, uh, computer chess begins to take off. And in 1997, deep blue beats Gary Kasparov becoming the first computer to beat a chess, gra chess grandmaster. Um, but and not the last. Nope. And, Pretty much uh, most chess computers are able to beat grandmasters and kind of similar to the Go AI revolution. You know, a Go computer is going to be significantly better than even the strongest players. Chess has kind of had the same thing. Um, um, it's worth noting uh, that just recently a chess or a Go amateur managed to beat a high level uh go bot really yeah it's the thing where you know that saying about how oh the master swordsman doesn't fear the other master swordsman he fears the complete noob yeah yeah it's that. i can see that it's uh, the person won by using strategies that would make no sense and so yeah. the computer couldn't figure out how to counter that <laughs> um uh, which is hilarious some... but still as somebody who has taught uh, newbies how to fence, that is very true. It is hard to fence against somebody who has no idea what they're doing because you cannot predict in any way what's going to happen. So yeah, uh, after the 90s, chess computers, they're a thing. Um, right now I have uh, the Grandmaster Edition of Chess Master installed on my PC. You can play it on your phone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Chess computers are pretty much everywhere. 
so if you actually want to play chess and you want to play consistently, 2023, you can play it just about anywhere and everywhere you want to go. So yeah, that's pretty much an overview of the history of chess, like as a game from like the, the 10,000 foot view, or at least as much of that view as I can make it. Cause I know I like to go into details. So that's the, the main game of chess. And how do we, how do we keep chess fresh after like 3000 odd years? Any, any hint, any guesses? Um, we add new pieces. Partially. Homebrew was, Homebrew the, was the correct answer. Homebrew. Yeah, add new pieces. Yep. Uh, they actually do have a name. They're called fairy chess pieces because they're supposed to be like rare, like fairies. You very rarely see them. Uh, I looked up a list of fairy chess pieces and there are so, so many of them. Uh, usually they're... Usually a fairy chess piece has like a specific variant of the game associated with it. And a lot of them are like combinations of two pieces. Um, there's one that I can't remember the name of, but it will, when it moves, it moves one diagonally like a, uh, like a rook and then does a little L turn like a knight. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of variants that rely on specific pieces or amalgamations of pieces. Um, and chess variants are at least to me, a thing that helps keep the game interesting because like, yeah, there's a lot of depth and strategy that you could add in to one specific game, but you know, you can always add more and it's just, it's how games evolve. It's how we got international chess to begin with. Otherwise we'd still be playing Chaturanga, which I mean, I'm down for that. I don't know. I, I want elephants in my chess. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there's like 20,000 ish, uh, recognized chess variants. Who so. recognizes them? Uh, I think FIDE is like the, they're the global governing body for chess. And I think they have like a thing of like, yes, these are, you know, variants that we can run like tournaments for, or at least like keep track of them. Uh, I probably could have done more, more research on that, but eh, I'm a, I'm a lazy scholar, I guess. Um, a podcaster, not a, yeah, whatever. I'm a podcaster, not a researcher. Do I look like I have a doctorate? Sometimes <laughs> when you're wearing glasses. This is true. I do need, I do need new glasses because uh, as I've been working on my blood bowl stuff, I've been getting a lot of eye strain. So I think I need a combination of both new glasses and uh, some sexy specs to magnify what I'm looking at because I'm getting old. Um. There's also a website, I think it was uh, chessvariants.com, where they have a big archive where people just host variants and you can add in, like, you know, the history of where it may have come from or any any weird rules and such like that. Uh, but there, I figured I'd pick out just a couple of them uh, as examples rather than going through all 20,000 odd variants. The most, the most well-known one is... Uh, called either chess 960 or Fisher variant random chess, uh, depending on how much you want to feed Bobby Fisher's undead ego. 
this was the other good thing he did for chess was came up with an interesting randomized variant where your uh, home rank, where all of your important pieces sit, is randomized in whatever mathematical calculation they use to determine where the pieces go has 960 potential variations of where the pieces will end up. And so that's why it's called chess 960. Um, this one was intended to mix up the openings because everything is random. You're going to have a lot harder time just going with a book opening or seeing a book opening from your opponent. And so there's a lot more of improv and, uh, mental energy, I guess, than just being like, yep, that's this opening. Here's what I'm going to do in response. So, uh, in this variant, um, are both, do both pieces, uh, do both players get the same, like, change? Or can one player end up with all queens while the other has, like, just a bunch of knights? Uh, it's not the actual pieces that are randomized. It's the... Uh, placement of the pieces that's randomized. Okay. Although I am I am willing to bet like one with 100% surety that there is a variant that involves completely randomized armies as far as, you know, who has what on their on their home rank. Which also I'd be down to play cuz that could be interesting. I I mean I was just thinking, you know, playing oops all knights. <laughs> oops all queens. <laughs> yeah, oops all queens or whatever would be entertaining. <laughs> Um, um, let's see another, another interesting one that I found is called peasants revolt where one side has a rank of pawns and a king while the other side has two knights, a pawn and a king. And the I think idea I've heard of that one, yeah, I, I think I've mentioned that one before. Um, that one looks interesting just cause I like the idea of the, the peasant revolt, um, in a lot of other non-English languages, uh, seems like particularly in central Europe, the pawn is also known as either a farmer or a peasant. So that seems applicable. Yep. Uh, let's see. There's also uh, this, the Star Trek tri-dimensional chess. Yeah. Uh, which actually has rules uh, associated with it now. Of course it does. Um, Star Trek wouldn't do otherwise. Yep. Uh, those rules are based off of the... The core, the core rules are based off of, like, FIDE's official rules for how international chess works. Um, I don't know, like, how much recognition there is for it, but you can get, like, tournament rules and you can run, you know, events and stuff playing tri-dimensional chess. Uh, just good luck getting the super chess nerds to uh, take you seriously on that one. Who knows? Depends on how much of a Star Trek nerd they are as well. I mean, yeah. You, you gotta play tri-dimensional chess, otherwise yep. the Klingons win. Yeah, I want to I play Magnus Carlsen in uh, no. tri-dimensional chess Bobby and absolutely Fish, get hammered. Bobby Fischer has to go play against the Romulans. Because <laughs> you know be, the Romulans would be, a... would be the ones who are totally into it. That is their game. I mean, I, I kind of feel like Bobby Fischer would defect and join the Romulans, though. I mean... He he doesn't maybe he joined the Dominion or something, something. Yeah, weird. yeah. I think I think Dominion. Whichever whichever Star Trek Empire would be considered the most anti-Semitic. That would be the one he would go with. 
probably the Dominion or um no Cardassians. Yeah, Cardassians. Yep. He would he would play for the Cardassian he would go, side. Yeah, he'd go join the Cardassians. That that we we've got this locked in. I wanna play I wanna play Klingon chess. Cause I'm sure that one involves a lot of just like throwing pieces across the room. That sounds fun. Um I think Klingon chess is just like Warhammer. Klingon chess is actual like live chess, except you actually oh. beat your opponent. You you beat the other pieces to death. Klingons play capture. chess boxing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, live chess. That was the thing that I didn't bring up in the in the history section, but uh, back in the Middle Ages and kind of the 18th, 19th centuries, that was a thing that aristocrats and uh, fancy rich people would do was they would have like servants and or, uh, you know, their underlings would play live games of chess where they would move them across the across a giant chessboard um, out like in a garden or something like that. That was a thing that they did. Um, I'm sure that's some kind of power trip. Uh, let's see. Uh, the last variant here that I had listed uh, was from 2014 called Chess 2, the sequel. Uh, it originally came out for the Ouya Android system, which I had one of those. Uh, rest in peace, Ouya. You were fun for a while. Um, and then it, then it also came to Steam, so the game does live on. It was designed by a couple of game designers named Dave Serlin and Zachary Burns. Uh, they took inspiration from Chess 960 um, and also added different army setups. So there are different combinations of what kind of pieces you have. Uh, there's a new win condition where if you get your king across the fourth rank, uh, you can win that way. Uh, there's a dueling system where each player gets, uh, I think, three stones at the beginning of the game. And they can, when somebody makes a capture, they can initiate a duel and bid either one or two stones and if the person initiating the duel uh wins because i think you have to be the person who's being captured uh if you win the duel both pieces are removed from the board not just the one that's captured so in addition to that uh you have to make a decision of do i potentially want to lose this piece you know in ex making this trade do i want to take the risk of potentially losing that piece and you can gain stones by capturing pieces with pawns so you have to keep in mind like how many potential challenges to a capture your opponent could make um this sounds weird uh, getting stones so is this also uh are you also playing go at the same time i mean you probably could yeah um chess yeah, well, we'll... electric chess -aloo. We'll have to we'll have to do that play. We'll have to like play chess and go simultaneously. I don't know how we'll intertwine them, but I'm sure we'll find a way. So yeah, that's that's all I had written on this script for chess. It looked a lot longer than it actually ran, but forty five ish minutes. I guess that's not bad. Any any closing thoughts on chess? I don't I don't think chess particularly makes you any smarter because we have kind of this cultural association with being intelligent and knowing how to play chess. I would say there's one additional variant of chess that's worth talking about here, and that is chess boxing. Go for it. Which is a primarily played in Eastern Europe, um, but it is alternating rounds of boxing and chess. 
oh wait, I've heard of this. Yes. Yes. Uh, where you can win via checkmate or knockout. Yes. Nice. Um, and to uh, like to play it at an official level, you have to be ranked a certain level in chess and have a certain number of boxing wins. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting combination of chess rules and like physical combat essentially mm -hmm. uh because you you are trying to win via either punching the other guy in the head so much that he's bad at chess or mm -hmm. by um you know uh being good enough at chess that you don't have to get punched in the head <laughs> Um, when you when you mentioned chess boxing, I thought you were making a reference to uh, Wu Tang Clan. I mean, I think Wu Tang Clan was making a reference to something that's real when they uh, did the song about the mystery of chess. But yes, boxing. now looking back, I think I do, I do remember seeing chess boxing, and I think I may have watched a match uh, at my office job on a particularly bored day. That along with the UFC. Uh, Russia, where they bring out the dudes in full armor and they just beat each other with swords. But yeah, chess boxing that uh, that makes my the heart of my inner Slav glow. I don't think I'm good enough at either chess or boxing to survive that game, though. Yeah, I I like both the um, Elo level of chess and the number of matches of. Uh... Uh, and the number of boxing rounds that you have to have won in order to participate. So, last time I did boxing, I I nearly lost consciousness. So that doesn't bode well for me. I mean, that's fairly normal for boxing, I believe. Yeah, it's about right. So yeah, chess is fun. Uh, at least I I think it's fun. Um, it exercises a different part of my brain, I would say, from playing Go. Uh, Go is much more open ended. I think in comparison to chess and it takes a lot, at least for me, it takes a lot more mental flexibility and planning and rec like uh, situational awareness, I guess. I would say what... the big difference is that go is a more flexible game where you have to like, look at the overall state yeah. of the board and sort of, come up with territorial moves whereas chess is very much a combinatorial attack thing where you have to try and figure out oh, okay if this goes there then that goes there then you're like figuring out a sequence yeah it's um, like a lot of the chess variants what they're trying to do is trying to disrupt that kind of just rote memorization of how the openings mid game and end game are supposed to go compared to go where it's like, I don't know, it could turn into anything. So yeah, I still enjoy chess. Uh, I try to play online when I can. I don't do very well, but the more I play, you know, the better I'll get, hopefully. Similar with go, but I think the go journey is going to be a much longer one, I think. Probably, yes. Go has a lot lot more things to actually learn. Yeah. I mean, not that chess doesn't, but Go has a lot of complexity in it. And the level of theory in it is actually 
it's a different style of theory. Yep. I think it's just the key. So, yeah. Know. Chess is good. There's a lot of variants. I want to play the variants. I want to play the the ancient uh, forerunners of chess. Just like how I pretty much want to play all board games. Uh, it has spark going back to both Go and chess has sparked some more of my interest in uh, traditional and or abstract board games. Because I do think that's kind of one thing that a lot of modern board games lose is that they focus on a lot of like flash and presentation rather than the core gameplay. Yeah. Oh, wait, I uh, I almost forgot a chess variant that we have played. Tank chess. I, I forget what tank chess had. Uh, so tank chess, I don't remember the name of the company uh, that I got it from, but I think they're from... Serbia, um, but it's literally tests with chess with tanks. And instead of capturing pieces by moving onto the board, or sorry, moving onto their space, uh, you have to make line of sight contact with the, with the piece. And the pieces also have, uh, I think, like different differing arm, armor values and like attack strengths. And so... If you have like a king tiger piece, you know, you're not going to take down a king tiger with a T-34 necessarily. Um, and then there are uh, wall pieces that block line of sight. Uh, we played it once pre-pandemic, like right after I got it. Um, we haven't played it since. I should look and see if there's a module for it on tabletop simulator, because I think that would be fun to go back to and at some point, I want to get like a full size thing because when I got it, I got this like the small travel version because I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to have like this full size thing. But I had enough interesting times with it that probably the full size set is warranted, at least for my Sounds brain. Sounds like a plan. Yep. So, OK, that's officially all I have to say about chess. I've hit the 50 minute mark. I'm good. All right. So that brings us to the end of chess. Chess is over. So let's talk. Chess is over. Game corner. Our today's board game is technically not a board game. It's a video game, but it's a video game that allows you to play a board game in a new and interesting way. And the video game is called 5D Chess with Multiversal Time Travel. That's right. It's but, another chess variant. But I thought you said chess was over. Not anymore, because this one goes back in time. 5D Chess with Multiversal Time Travel is utterly bananas. Um... Basically, it's a, oh no, I'm in checkmate. What shall I do? I shall send the queen back in time to start a new timeline where it kills Sarah Connor and I'm not in check. <laughs> like, literally, it is the Terminator franchise, but also in chess. And you have to, to win, you can either, like, time lock out your opponent or put them in check across all timelines. Um... If they can't make a legal move and on any board, or if they are in check on all timelines, you win. It's insane. It's an it's on Steam. It's amazing. There's some YouTube videos of people discussing it that run like half an hour long, and we're not going to do that because that would be an entire episode in and of itself. And I have not played enough of it to really dig into that. But I would say that Five D Chess with Multiversal Time Travel is. A worthy addition to chess. 
many years ago, I tried to invent a game called Chrono Chess that was, you know, the idea there was that it would be played across five boards in person. And I was not good enough at working out the rules to make it happen. Uh, 5D Chess with Multiversal Time Travel has a lot more than five boards. And plays on a computer so you don't have to worry so much about tracking moves and stuff and it's it's bananas it sounds like a never-ending chess puzzle it is a puzzle it can end but it is a mind fuck so if you're interested in chess and also in time travel i would recommend 5d chess with multiversal time travel you said that Um, was on steam it is on steam i think it's like 25 bucks Damn. It might if if it's not on sale. If it's on sale, you can probably get it for like ten. Uh, probably worth picking up if you want to play chess, but also want to go back in time and kill Hitler. I'll have to look. I'll have to look for that one. And then there was another one that I saw recently called like King with a Shotgun, and it's like a, a roguelike chess puzzle where the, uh, the other shotgun. side has their pieces and the king is on his own, but the king has a shotgun and so can shoot other pieces off the board interesting that's a that's a variant i hadn't considered yep um so that is our podcast uh as always thanks for listening um follow us on social media instagram twitter the rate subscribe like do the other things do the interaction things that cause other people to hear about the podcast um write an angry letter entirely done in chess format and send that to us so that we can <laughs> remake the moves on our, our own board and see how you're insulting us. Um, I mean, playing correspondence chess via postcard like the olden days, that could be a fun experiment. Yeah, or playing it via like open forums the way the Anarchy Chess does on Reddit where they <laughs> accept any move, legal or not. I love Anarchy Chess. It, it's a lovely, lovely bizarre place um google emphasant um and yeah do the things ed's about to tell you to do oh boy you can follow me at animadness on instagram um posting some stuff there because i'm kind of stuck in the house and been doing more hobby stuff lately uh for a lack of a lot of other things to do uh you can play chess you can play go i'd say play go first and then play chess. Uh, if you can support any LGBTQIA plus charities, uh, do so, particularly if they're in the states of Florida, Tennessee, Mississippi, Texas, uh, Idaho, and or uh, Montana. We've had a really bad week as a community, so if you can support uh, anybody there, that'd probably be helpful. Um, does ACAB include the queen? I don't know. Is the queen? I think it Maybe. includes knights. Yeah, ACAB includes knights. Yeah. Uh, pawn power. Yes, uh, power to the pawns. Yep, uh, power to the pawns and go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles.